Last time we checked in, the sept was toast. Now what's everybody up to in Westeros? The army of the dead's coming south with snows. Thank the seven, everybody's in Westeros. Winter came for House Frey. If one wolf gets in the wine, the sheep are never safe. Visions and all, Bran reached the wall. And it let him in, but that might have been a dooming call. John and Sansa held a great big meeting. Brienne's given pot quite a beating. Torment is entranced, and little fingers creeping like he does. Glossing over Sam, cause he's got it gross. The unluckiest guy in Westeros. Haven't seen Nymeria, haven't seen Ghost, but everybody else is in Westeros. Hello everyone and welcome to A Cast of Kings, an unofficial podcast about the HBO original series Game of Thrones. I'm David Chen and I haven't read most of the books in George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. I'm Joanna Robinson and I've read every book in George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. Welcome to the show everyone. Find more episodes of this podcast at GameOfThronesPodcast.com. Email us at acastofkings at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at acastofkings. Uh, what we do here on this podcast is we recap every episode of the HBO original show, Game of Thrones, but we don't give any info or plot details from future episodes, and that includes anything on the next time on preview for the show. We also don't include any uh, book knowledge, uh, although Joanna Robinson has that in spades. Um, but before we book get to... Book knowledge, the- but not book spoilers. Uh, exactly uh, right. That's okay. exactly right. Exactly right. Um but before we get to today's festivities, uh, there's a few things uh, I wanted to cover. Firstly, uh, you may have noticed some pretty awesome music uh, was the introduction for this week's episode of the podcast, and that is because we were honored to have uh, Jenny Owens-Young and Kristen Russo from the podcast Buffering the Vampire Slayer. Uh, they actually wrote and recorded that song for us, right? Is that correct, Joanna? Yeah, at our request. Yes. So, uh, so they're great musicians, and you can find that song, uh, which is called Dragonstone, over at bufferingthevampireslayer.com slash GOT. That's bufferingthevampireslayer.com slash GOT. Uh, and we will also play uh, the rest of the song at the end of this episode of the podcast. So normally, yeah, normally something like this we would tack at the end of the podcast, but I really wanted to make sure you heard it because it is so delightful. There is a really hilarious crackpot theory joke lyric that you have yet to hear, that, so you should listen to the whole thing for that. And then also, even though they're not obviously not a sponsor of this episode, I want to genuinely express my love for this podcast, Buffering the Vampire Slayer, which I have been a guest on. Um, it's a fantastic rewatch show about my favorite TV show of all time, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Awesome. So you can find them at bufferingthevampireslayer.com. And we're really grateful to them for making the music for this week's episode of the podcast. Uh, we always ask for your emails at acastofkings at gmail.com. We'll, uh, we'll actually read an email at the end of this episode. Um, but also wanted to do some corrections from last week. Joanna Robinson, uh, once in a blue moon, you know, once every, I don't know, six to 12 months, uh, I am right about something. Uh, <laughs> it happens extremely rarely, um, but it does happen. I don't recall. I don't recall it ever happening. <laughs> yeah, before. no, that's that's a fair point. Uh, I think a lot of <laughs> listeners would agree with you on that. But no, this is an instance in which, uh, in last week's episode of the podcast, I, I made a couple statements. One of them being that uh, the opening credits 
of last week, it was the first time uh, where Essos was not depicted in that like map in the opening credits. Uh, and I believe that is uh, still true this week, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so this week, season seven, episode two, Stormborn, we got uh, similar opening credits, no Essos, uh, but we did get Pike uh, in this week's episode of the opening credits. So a little bit of a change there. Uh, and also liked seeing the uh, the Citadel in uh, in both last week and this week's episode uh, in the opening credits. Now, Joanna, there's also been a pretty crazy theory going on about the opening credits, hasn't there? <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. So, so tell us about this theory about the opening credits of Season 7, Episode 1 and 2. Uh, if you watch the credits closely, uh, which, of course... I did. Um, eventually, <laughs> um, <laughs> you'll see um, when when the opening credits gets to the wall, which it does, and I believe every single episode of Game of Thrones, it goes to the wall. Um, you'll see it sort of the camera sort of swoops up past Winterfell to the wall and then zooms back out from the wall. Uh, so I watched that sequence in episode seven really uh, season seven really closely and then i compared it to season six and some other seasons uh this is not something i discovered this is something like a bunch of redditors discovered but you'll see that winter is encroaching a bit more in the season seven opening credits than it is in in the other credits i disagree with the assessment that the water on either side of the wall is like completely frozen over but there is definitely like there's a whiteness and a frostiness to it uh in season seven that that was there in season six right so people have speculated that because the season seven opening credits the water is frozen that white walkers can just walk over uh like walk around the wall rather yeah than maybe they'll maybe they'll like even speed skate or toboggan or something uh i don't like this theory <laughs> yeah, yeah so why don't, why, why don't you like this theory it seems like a very plausible theory. like if they alter the opening credits to show it, it feels like a very plausible theory to me i think the reason that they also the opening credits is to show you that winter is coming winter's here that's what i think it means i don't think it means that the white walkers are just gonna walk around the wall um i, I you know i promise you all you know i'm good at like taking my licks when i need to if i'm wrong if you're i eat a lot of crow like (laughs) i will i'll be here for that but uh right now i'm gonna plant my flag in no the white walkers will not be just moseying around the wall slip sledding their way on the ice into westeros get that crow bowl ready joanna (laughs) i'm gonna just take the position that yes they are gonna walk around because we had discussed last week you brought this up that uh, the reason why uh, Bran, you know, going into the wall and, and perhaps going south of the wall, like that was treated with no fanfare whatsoever. Maybe the reason is because the White Walkers don't even need to use the wall, right? So, no, but okay. Um, the other, <laughs> the other thing, uh, one of our someone in the in the live chat just asked, why doesn't King's Landing have a lion? I can't remember if we talked about this last week, but you know. Um, when the Boltons took Winterfell, the uh, the direwolf Stark sigil that was on Winterfell was replaced by the Bolton Flayed Man sigil. And then in Battle of the Bastards last year, when um, or, like in the episode after Battle of the Bastards last year in the finale, when when the Starks were triumphant, the direwolf was back on Winterfell. So they have in the past, you know, replaced sigils on different castles if they've been taken by someone else. So the question is, why isn't there a Lannister lion on King's Landing? 
a lot of, you know, the Baratheon stag is still there. A lot of people are like, oh, well, maybe it's because Cersei needs that Baratheon street cred in order to, like, maintain her claim to the throne. And I, I, I roundly reject that because she has hung a Lannister lion behind her throne. She replaced the seven-pointed star with a Lannister lion sigil behind her throne. She signed her raven to John this week as Cersei of House Lannister um, or last week. Uh, she, I, I think she's just full-blown. She's not going any line of succession, anything. She's just like, I took the throne. It's mine. I blew up the sept. Like everyone knows she blew up the sept. I blew right. up the sept. I'm a Lannister. I like having sex with my brother and I'm your queen. What are you going to do about it? I feel like that's her attitude. So, uh, then, so this, then you think the fact that a line is not in uh, King's Landing is an oversight then in the, uh, in the opening credits? Well, I tweeted today that it was bugging me. Not in a, It's a minor thing, but that it was bugging me. And then executive producer Brian Cogman, also the writer of this episode, said agreed. So I think oh, wow. that's official show confirmation that, that, that it's like a little, little uh, error in the opening credits. Um, but uh, one fun theory that someone had is, you know, they were talking uh, – Tyrion was talking in this episode about taking the Lannister seat of Casterly Rock – uh, which we've never seen on the show and we certainly never see in the opening credits. So someone floated the theory to me that like maybe we will see a little mechanical Casterly Rock in the opening map later this season. And maybe that's where the Lannister Lion sigil will show up. But they didn't want like two locations with the same sigil or something like that. So right. that that's one sense. that's one I that's the best idea that I've heard in terms of but but really, I really do think it should be a, a lion down on King's Landing. But, you know. Yeah. It's, By the way, did I mention okay. that all we do is talk about the opening credits of the show and that's it? No, <laughs> this I'm, is game of opening credits, yeah, right? <laughs> game of opening credits. Jonna, did you see this thing in Vulture last night? They tweeted this out for the recap. Uh, quote, ever since the beginning, the alliances on Game of Thrones have been something of a game of musical chairs. Uh, end quote. And I just thought, huh, if only there was a different word to denote what kind of game it was that is being played on the show. Anyway. You know, here's what I'm going to say. I can't join you in this because I have a lot of, as someone who like is jamming out content on Sunday nights for Game of Thrones, <laughs> I have a lot of sympathy for the writers, for the social media people, for everyone. Lord knows I've written a regrettable tweet or whatever on a Sunday night. So, um, so I, I kid because I love. I, sure. I, I love vultures, all their, st- all their stuff. And uh, it just uh, it was funny that, oh, it's like a game of musical chairs. Uh, I think it's like, like a Game of Thrones. Anyway, so let's move past the opening credits, Joanna. Oh, okay. Let's talk, let's talk about this week's episode of the podcast. Uh, season 7, episode 2, entitled Stormborn. Why don't we start by talking about what we thought was awesome about this week's episode. Okay, you know that I have to, like, stump for my man Jorah potentially getting a cure, right? Yep. That maybe, maybe he will not die of this wasting disease after all. So, you know. So it was very exciting to see Jorah might be cured. In fact, I would say that if he's not cured, I'll be very upset at this point because otherwise, why keep that plotline going? You know, why did you have to watch all that pus? We're not for a cure. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly correct. Uh, uh, agreed. It was nice to see Jora. Um, I mean, w- my favorite thing about this episode is uh, it is just a really exciting time to be watching the show right now. I mean, uh, I remember back in the day after the Starks were scattered to you know the the winds. That having a character um, show up in 
another character's presence, like another major character's presence, would be considered like a massive deal, right? Right. Um, and now you're seeing multiple characters uh, meet each other and like make plans and go off and do them. Uh, and it's happening like every other scene is, is you're seeing characters that have been separated by vast distances in time. It, it, all these plot lines are now colliding with each other and they're, they're generating heat, you know? And, uh, <laughs> and I really, I really like that about that. Yeah. My, my editor, Kitty Rich, I think she referred to Daenerys's war room as like Ocean's Eleven or something like that. Right. I, I mean, I, I, I don't know if we're quite there yet, if we've still got sand snakes on the board, but I think we could do even better. But, uh, yeah, it's starting to get really exciting to see all these different worlds coming together. Yeah. And all but, these, all these episode callbacks to, to older moments, uh, hot pie shows up in this episode you know there's a lot of like great things from the past that the show does a good job of honoring in my opinion absolutely but on the other hand it also it's you know uh and brian cogman who wrote this episode is is particularly meticulous about calling back to previous lines in the show like that's that's an observation that i have about brian is like that's something that he does a lot and so uh i both like it but on the other hand like i don't know sometimes it can be a little too much like you know, we had a couple in this episode, like Daenerys talking about what they told her brother about, you know, um, they, they drink secret toast in your name and stuff like that. Or, or, um, John said, Oh, you know, Tyrion signed his Raven with, you know, a quote about being a bastard. Yeah, that and that's something so that he said. Cool. Season one. Yeah. I love that so much. Okay. So you, lo- you love that stuff, but I just feel like, like sometimes it can be a little too much. It's a little leaning, maybe leaning a little too much on like, uh, remember this great dialogue from earlier in our show when we were pulling from the books all the time? I don't know if that's if that's something that. Well, I think that's a little unfair. Sounds fair. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I think that. Uh, it, I'm I'm keeping a tally though, and by the end of the by the end of the season, we'll have an accounting. Okay. Like uh, like I I. Actually, I, I probably shouldn't complain about this because I, I do think that George R. R. Martin is better at writing dialogue than Weiss or Benioff or Cogman. Like, and I don't think that that's a huge insult because I think just George R. R. Martin is a, a freaking genius. Mas- a master of the craft, yeah. Yeah, and his language is just more poetic than theirs. And that's that's okay. They're also very good storytellers. But when you have something like in the, tra- in the season seven trailer – when Santa says, uh, you know, the lone wolf dies but the pack survives. And that's a Ned Stark line from the first book. You know, I, I guess instead of me being like, well, they keep leaning on these old books, I should just be like happy that they're like keep plucking these old lines out so that I can I can hear the musicality of that language again. So Agreed. Never mind. Agreed. I'm going to bright side that. Okay. That, is a good, <laughs> that is a good decision, I think. All right, let's dive into the episode, Joanna. This episode begins uh, with Daenerys, and uh, they are in the Dragonstone map room, uh, and they have a very tense conversation. Daenerys calls out Varys uh, for shifting loyalties over the years. Varys is a, is a guy who has you know switched sides a bunch of times, and uh, she's calling him out. She's calling him out. Who hired the assassins? Who sent word to Essos to murder Daenerys Targaryen? Your grace. I did what had to be done to... to keep yourself alive. Lord Varys has proven himself a loyal servant. Proven himself loyal, quite the opposite. If he dislikes one monarch, he conspires to crown the next one. What kind of a servant is that? The kind the realm needs. Incompetence should not be rewarded with blind loyalty. As long as I have my eyes, I'll use them. I wasn't born into a great house. I came from nothing. 
I was sold as a slave and carved up as an offering. When I was a child, I lived in alleys, gutters, abandoned houses. You wish to know where my true loyalties lie? Not with any king or queen, but with the people. The people who suffer under despots and prosper under just rule. The people whose hearts you aim to win. If you demand blind allegiance, I respect your wishes. Grey Worm can behead me, or your dragons can devour me. But if you let me live, I will serve you well. I will dedicate myself to seeing you on the Iron Throne, because I choose you. Because I know the people have no better chance than you. I actually really enjoyed the scene. Uh, I, I think it served a really nice function. That being said, I agree with what you right here in the show notes. Probably something that should have come up a little bit earlier in time, you know? Right, uh, like probably, on the boat, any time on the boat. Maybe right don't over. wait. Maybe don't wait until you're, you know, at the precipice of uh, going into battle and depending on everyone to uh, to do this before you 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 confront your uh, your generals about this this kind of issue. That being said, yeah, it, I mean, it's something that hey, Daenerys who wants loyalty uh she it's something it's a a conversation she had to have uh and i thought it was well done it also closes a plot hole. Um, you know, my memory from the book is that the reason that Varys is okay with Daenerys' assassination early on in the story is because he's actually secretly backing um, a third character who never shows up on the TV series, um, who claims to be Aegon Targaryen, uh, you know, a third Targaryen sibling, basically. And um, I think a lot of people have concluded there's a lot of question in the book whether or not that guy is really Aegon Targaryen. And um, I think a lot of people have concluded because he's not showing up uh in in the tv series that uh he's actually fake and so we we shouldn't worry about him in the book he's not a real contender for the throne but that Varys was backing him earlier he had this like secret targaryen plot and that's why he wasn't backing daenerys from the start uh but in the show it didn't really make so much sense because the Aegon character wasn't there and so then it seemed like he was backing Viserys which is just a terrible decision because <laughs> right. Varys is a better judge of character than that so um, they, had, they had to make make up some reason why they he had to, like there had to be like a big scene about it and like um Tim I liked it because it closed that plot hole but I but I didn't feel like a very Varys scene to me but maybe he's just um more intimidated by dinner. Like usually Varys always seems like he has the upper hand and in this scene he didn't. And, and maybe that's interesting and something, you know, we should, we should hold on to, but, or maybe it was just sort of written slightly out of character. I can't decide which. So, um, like he should have anticipated this and I mean, he did have a good response, you know? Uh, and I, I, he actually appealed to Daenerys's, uh, desire to see other people have self-determination, you know, which I thought, was exactly how you should get to Daenerys. Um, so I, I did find it to be a, a good, well-acted scene that served a good function in the story. Uh, next, scene, I, I have to uh, say, also, Peter Dinklage, Tyrion's like, reactions of like, oh, damn, <laughs> like sort of <laughs> like quickly darting his eyes back and forth was, was pretty fantastic. Yeah, pretty good. So then uh, they meet Melisandre, uh, who has arrived at Dragonstone. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think, you know, there's a lot of questions about how did so-and-so get to so-and-so before the Raven got to the blah-blah-blah. And I think we might bring that up on occasion, but really at this point in the show, you just have to accept the logistics that the show presents to you, right? Like, you can't spend too much time thinking about, well, how long did this really take to get from blah to blah, right? 
Um, we used to think about it a lot more, yeah. and I think the show used to be more concerned with it. But now, I think in order just to enjoy the show at all, we're gonna have to let it go. Yeah, you just have to get this show. Just has to get shit done. I still uh, don't quite understand the spread of news and the rate of it, and who knows what. Like it just feels very convenient. Who knows what when? Right, right. But I have let go entirely how long it takes to get from X to Y to Z. Right. Because yeah. Dragonstone feels like pretty far away from the wall, I guess. Um, Shoes a Winterfell, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. Winterfell. Sorry, um, but yeah, uh, again, not not uh, not gonna. We'll we'll try our best not to bring it up, um, <laughs> but we may may on occasion uh, feel. But it's to. it's exciting. Melisandre meeting Daenerys. It's yeah, really fun. Yeah, uh, and then there's this amazing scene where they're talking about the prophecy, right? Yeah. And uh, Misende corrects the translation and says, actually, the chosen one could be a prince or a princess. Right. Um, which I just thought was delightful linguistics going on in the show for this completely fictional language. Uh, no, it was, it was great. It, was, it brought Misende's, like, sort of uptight translator persona, her, like, C-3PO-ness, like, into great effect in this scene. And um, the the fact that Melisandre is, like... Melisandre's not bothered at all and she's like you know what maybe letter of the law prophecies is not really even what we should be dealing with she says <laughs> after Stannis died and she like yeah. has to reevaluate everything and she um, burned Shireen alive yeah she I think she's I you know my interpretation of what Melisandre says is basically like I don't think there is a promised one I think that there are promised people and I like you know my reading of that it was sort of like a Yoda, there is another Skywalker scene, sort of like, I think she's like, you and Jon Snow are special people and you have special right. things to do. You both have and, a role to play. So I, yeah. and I think that, you know, the show is also saying, hey, it's keeping open the idea that one of these people, like, it could be both. It's not just necessarily a man. Uh, it's, it's kind of creating some suspense there. Uh, my understanding, so I was able to watch uh, this episode with friend of the show, Miles McNutt, uh, who is recapping Game of Thrones for AV Club, and he said that this translation thing was not in the books as of yet. No. Is that that matches your understanding? or Correct. Yeah. So, uh, so I guess it's kind of a game changer, but at the same time, as long as, as like deep-dyed book nerds have been speculating about the, the Chosen One, the Azor Ahai Prince Who Has Promised pro- Prophecy, Daenerys has always been a candidate. So it's not like the word prince has ever like really ruled out Daenerys as people's like guess for who Azor Ahai might be. Right. So while it's like very cute in the show, it's not like uh, suddenly everyone's like, oh, it could be a girl. What? Um, that's why I think the fact the idea that it could be more than one person is even more interesting. Though I like the translation bit. It was fun. Yeah, it, it is fun. And, and I wish uh, I wish modern day uh, religion was a little bit more. Uh, open to multiple translations of similar passage of the same passage, you know. Right. Um, yeah. Anyway, so then Danny and Tyrion hold a war console. Uh, they explain, you know, everyone's saying, "Why don't you just store? Why don't you just get in there, get in King's Landing, and uh, just kill everything? Use your dragons, just kill everyone." Uh, and she explains, "I don't want to be ruling over ashes." Um, Tyrion wants Westerosi forces to attack King's Landing, not foreign invaders. Right. Uh, so he concocts a plan for uh, the Tyrells and the Martells to work together uh, to do so. Uh, he and Danny are on the same page, um, but like, there's a lot of tension in this room. A lot of tension in this room. Uh, you know, Ilaria Sand, her uh, beloved Oberyn, died fighting for Tyrion. Um, 
of course, Tyrion's pretty pissed that Marcella was poisoned by Ilaria. Uh, so it's a it's a ragtag group of people that are. Working. It's crazy that Tyrion's working with Ilaria. Yeah. Because like he loved Marcella. Um, I don't know about loved. Maybe that's too strong. He did ship her off to Dorne, but like in the like couple scenes that he has with Marcella in the first couple seasons, he's really cute with her. He's really cute with Tommen and Marcella. I don't know if you remember that. Like he's like Joffrey's a psychopath, but I like these two kids, and um. And also, we've never really seen Tyrion reckon with any guilt over – it was his idea to send Marcella to Dorne. So we've never seen him really process that at right. all, right. Um, which is – you know, it feels like the, the show just doesn't have time for stuff like that. But that's kind of a pity. But it is crazy that those two people are get, working together. And the reason I wrote in the show notes that um, Daenerys and Tyrion are on the same page when they're talking to – Alaria and Olena and the Greyjoys um, is that it stands out in, in sharp contrast to John and Sansa who just can't get their fucking shit on the same page before meetings up north. Like Daenerys and Tyrion have a conversation before their bigger meeting right. where he gives her that like Queen of the Ashes line yep. and then they have their big meeting and she uses his line and they are a united force and they're like this is our plan and this is what we're going to do and I'm like that's what John and Sansa need a pre-meeting. That's it's what they just, need. It's so. just basic workplace uh courtesy guys I right, mean, right it's not you know rocket science here uh all that said elena tries to subvert this partnership between uh daenerys and Tyrion by advising her hey uh you need to be feared you gotta you should go in there and like kill everyone you know uh or you know do be a dragon is what she says to her uh, so it'll be interesting to see how daenerys takes that advice but so what, what are the details of the plan again joanna that uh, he sends... That gets screwed before the episode's over. He yeah. sends... Um, he sends the Greyjoy fleet, so so uh, Yara's Iron Fleet, to escort Alaria and the Sand Snakes and some other Martells uh, down to Dorne to get the Dornish army, like the, the ground army, mobilized and then ferry them back up to King's Landing and have the Tyrells, uh, who are also sort of around their areas around King's Landing, have their army mobilized. Um, and so then, you know, Tyrion is rightly reads Cersei's mind when he's like, it will look bad for a Dothraki horde and a bunch of Unsullied to come take King's Landing. It'll be better. It'll be a better look if a bunch of Westerosi people agree together that Cersei has to go right. from like a xenophobia point of view. So that's yeah. that's Tyrion's very smart plan. And then and then Elena's like pissed. She's like, oh, so we do all the work and you sit back. And Tyrion's like, no. Meanwhile, we send the Unsullied over to Casterly Rock and take Casterly Rock. Um, so, you know, that's his sort of like pincer right, attack. The, it's the like, home it's, of the Lannisters, right? Is right. The, the seat, the historical seat of the Lannisters. So, uh, which is on sort of the other side of King's Landing. So then he they would like, oh, pretty close to have them surrounded. And, uh, so it's a great idea, uh, if things hadn't gone to shit <laughs> in the bay <laughs> later on in the episode. But, um, but that's smart, you know, like Tyrion, you know, one of my frustrations last season was Tyrion just seemed full of bad ideas uh, in Marine. Like all of his ideas until Daenerys got back were bad ones. And um, I'm happy to see him back in Westeros because it feels like he knows the players here better. Uh, not feels like he knows the players here better. It's literally his siblings and he knows their mind. The only thing like, w you know, we should... Um, 
consider here is, you know, uh, I think Yara and Alaria and Elena are all urging Daenerys. To just, like, if you look at a map, this will come in handy later. If you look at a map, Dragonstone and King's Landing are very close together. They're on either sides of Blackwater Bay. They're, she's just across the bay from King's Landing. I mean, it might be a big bay, but she's across the bay from King's Landing. So uh, she is so it's so crazy in this game of risk that Daenerys is camped so close to Cersei. Um, and, and so, yeah, so they've got all these forces. And as we talked about the end of last season, like Cersei's so outmatched by what Daenerys has. Like if she just came full force at King's Landing, there's no way Cersei could, could match her at well, all. I, I don't know if you saw later in the episode, Joanna, but apparently you can defeat a dragon with an arrow uh, is what I understand. <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll we'll get back to that. But like, um, the the thing we have to consider is like, Tyrion has a good a good reason for them not to do that. All of his reasons are good, but there's also probably the hidden reason that like he doesn't want to destroy his home and he doesn't want to destroy his brother who he loves. Right. So like a more a more measured approach, a more not, you know, just carpet bomb King's Landing approach uh might be motivated by Tyrion's sort of conflicting Lannister allegiances, you know? I was reading Alan Seppenwall's recap of this and he brought up uh, some a fact about the scene that I hadn't thought of, which is that Danny is trying to lead this group of I think I think he described it as mutilated men and women, right? And it hadn't occurred to me that all the men in the scene were mutilated in some way. Uh, they were either eunuchs or castrated, or in the case of Tyrion, uh, his face is all messed up from from the battle. It's uh, a light scar. <laughs> yeah, I, okay. I mean theoretically, it should be like a bigger scar. But uh, I guess. Uh, I, I am wondering if there is something this show is trying to say about the connection between like masculinity and uh, xenophobia and like brutality. You know, like in this scene, Euron at the end shows up in, in like really intense fashion and starts like killing dudes left and right, uh, killing women as well, the Sand Snakes. And uh, you know, he's allied himself with Cersei, and I just kind of wonder like, is there a broader point there about uh, the fact that it's these these men who, uh, many of which have no genitalia, uh, who are advocating for a more uh, peaceful, I guess, theoretically could be peaceful uh, means of taking over. Uh, and so uh, do you have any thoughts on that? I remember some discussions around this uh, at the during the finale last season because when they had that shot of Daenerys coming to Westeros, it was like the eunuch parade, basically, with Varys and Theon and the Unsullied all there. Um, but – and I would say that would make more sense to me if Daenerys were up again a swaggering male, which I guess Euron is, but her main foe is Cersei. Right. And so I don't know that you can really draw those clear gendered lines. In fact, you know – with John leaving Winterfell, you've got Sansa ruling the North and Cersei ruling King's Landing and then Daenerys like sort of encroaching. So really it's, it's a battle between it's, women. Basically. It's just a, it's a queen thing. Right. And so I don't know that like swaggering, you know, Jon Snow, Jon Snow is a key player, but I've never considered Jon Snow to be any kind of swaggering masculine figure, nor Jamie. Cause he's also mutilated, you know, he's missing a hand, uh, his sword hand, you know, that feels significant. So, right. you know, I, I guess Euron is our last remaining, like if, unless I'm forgetting someone important, our last, you know, uh, Sam, I don't know. Um, <laughs> our last remaining, 
um, like dick swinging figure <laughs> Game of Thrones. So yeah. yeah, interesting, interesting to think about, but I don't know that it's like a clear cut. Yeah, I don't this versus that, you know, so, so to speak. Um, but yeah. yes, I I agree. Like, there's not there's not a clear point yet that I can divine, but maybe you know, maybe I'm missing it. Maybe we're missing it. Write into a cast of kings at gmail.com if you have any thoughts on that. But uh, I mean, the the idea of Daenerys as the leader of like the Island of Misfit Toys is very compelling yes, to me. I agree. You know, I that's agree, yeah. that's always been sort of like a, a mission statement of hers. So she left Dario behind, so she's like, we're all broken things now. <laughs> right. You know, uh, Joanna, you were talking earlier about how oh, the show doesn't have time to reckon with. Uh, Tyrion shipping off Marcella and, and the tragedy of her death at the hands of Ilaria Sand. But you know what the show does have time for? Is What's that? Missende and Grey Worm yeah. getting it on. Sure getting does. Uh, you know, if you ask me to make a list of top eight things that I want wanted to see uh, in an episode of Game of Thrones, given that there's only, you know, 13 episodes left, I wouldn't say that the Missende and Grey Worm relationship was one of them. But... I did think that the scene was uh, nice, and uh, it, it probably my guess is it's probably the last time we're going to see these characters together. Uh, like it's kind oh, of oh that felt like a like a permanent goodbye to you. Yeah, it's like hey, we've had this kind of subplot between Missende and Grey Worm. Uh, it's come up a few times, and uh, we don't want to just forget about it, so we want to honor it in some way. And the way we're going to honor it is with uh, a somewhat graphic scene between the two of them. Uh, where they find tenderness despite, you know, Grey Worm's um, limitations. Uh, limitations, right? Yeah, and and then the, that's but that that that'll be it. Like at least, kind of maybe I'm saying I hope that that's it. You know, like a, cu- a couple things. Yeah. Um, one, a lot of people in the chat are bringing up something that I've heard a lot, which is why did they not close the door? <laughs> Yeah, she like disrobes. She she has a yeah. one stri- like a thing that she pulls and it like automatically disrobes her entirely. But she does it with the door open, right? Yeah. So, so, um, but so hey, the maybe, door stays open is, that whole time. That's yeah, okay. Dragonstone is largely deserted, Joanna. So you know, <laughs> I don't know. Daenerys has a lot of Dothraki. Like, where is everyone <laughs> staying? Yeah. I feel like Dragonstone should be like packed with right. Dothraki and Unsullied right. and everyone. Um. The but it's fine that uh, you know Grey Worm has massive quarters. He's a general. That makes sense to me. Um, the other thing is something I do know is people have been wondering for years the logistics of both uh, Grey Worm's physio- physiognomy. Did I say that right? Mm-hmm. Physiology and um, and like the logistics of how and why their relationship could ever work. So this, like, there's a, speaking of Vulture, as we were, there's a great piece by um, Jennifer. I think it's Vineyard or Vineyard. I've met her recently. She's a lovely person, and I'm so sorry that I don't know her last name perfectly. But she wrote this very clever piece back in season five where she interviewed a bunch of sex experts and Natalie Emanuel, who plays Miss Andy, to, like, find out, like, how this could actually happen between Miss Andy and Grey Worm. So if you want to hear a bunch of, like, sex psychologists and, and advice, whatever, it was a really fun piece that I read, uh, you know, last night when I was thinking about this sort of stuff. Um, so there, I think there is a contingent of people who wanted to see this. But um, I'm with you that I wouldn't mind if it's the last time we saw it. And I will say, like, the, I, you know, I watched the episodes multiple times. And the third time I watched it with my roommate while I was sort of doing something else. And they the scene started and I was like, okay, I don't need to, like, read too closely into this scene. So I'm going to look down on my work for a little while. And then I, like, looked back up and I was like, is this scene still happening? <laughs> like, how long is this scene? It is scene? a very so, lengthy scene. And, yeah. Yeah. And so that's 
Uh, I don't think I don't think it was a bad scene. It just is the, the show has so little time left. It feels like uh, I would rather see another plotline advance or or see another character moment between characters that I'm actually more attached to. And for them to spend so much time on the scene, I felt like okay, well, the only like if if this is the final scene with Pepsi and Grey Worm, I'm I'm okay with that. You know, well, go, go you out know, with a bang, as it were. The thing, the the interesting thing is. Um, I feel like they're kind of damned if they do and damned if they don't because I, when I was interviewing uh, casting director Nina Gold for this feature of Vanity Fair and I asked her about like sort of the controversy around diversity and casting in Game of Thrones and she was, you know, a little defensive about it. She's cast some very interesting and diverse projects like the new Star Wars films. So like, you know, I'm not casting in aspersions on her personal like politics or anything like that. But she did say, you know, we have done some things like try to expand the Masandi and Grey Worm roles so that you know they're more significant and then you know they're they actually have something to do outside of this like you know white woman they serve and stuff like that so i think that i really do think that that's what they were trying to do as a reaction to people's frustrations over this i don't know that they've like hit the mark but i really i feel like that that's their intention with this huge expansion of these roles so you know yeah uh and you know I will say I was a little disappointed they didn't show Grey Worm's situation. I just thought it would have been like a brave thing to show, like something that hasn't been seen on television before. I uh, think it's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. You you mean you wanted to see like the the whole like Kendall what, Like whatever was going on there, like it just would have yeah. been, it would have been a pretty subversive thing to show on television, I think. Um, and that an opportunity was missed to do that. But, mm. you know, uh, whatever. Not not a big deal either way. In any case, uh, I, I I think it was a a, a nice moment, and uh, I you know I, I've been thinking a lot about which characters. One thing I will say that to to this series credit is thus far they haven't spent that much time introducing brand new characters uh, this season. They're they're finding drama within existing characters, and I really really like that about. Uh, the season so far, you know, uh, is that there's more callbacks than there are new characters. I think because they're, you know, things are coming to an end. So, mm-hmm. uh, so that's that is to the show's credit, and this scene is an example of that. All right, let's move on to the Citadel. Uh, the, we get a scene with Jorah where uh, Ebros, played by Jim Broadbent, is diagnosing Jorah, tells him there's no cure, and he has one day to live. And uh, or not no, one, one day, day, to, live, one one day, day to, to leave uh, to leave because yeah. usually, usually they would just ship him out immediately, but right. because he's a knight, he says he gives him one more day, and sure. uh, Sam finds out that Jorah is uh, Gior Mormont's son, right? Yeah. From uh, from the Night's Watch, is yeah. that right? Yes. Um, so Sam confronts Ebros and says he thinks he's found a cure for Grayscale. Uh, Ebros says. Uh, the, the, whatever cure there was, it's too dangerous. It's been banned completely. Yeah. But Sam is so moved by Jorah's situation that uh, he decides to try and cure Jorah anyway, um, which begins by having him peel off all the infected mm-hmm. tissue. Uh, and then that, there's a very brilliant transition to someone eating food. Um, the pot pie. Uh, yeah, the, the, hot, the pot pie. Uh, from the flaying of Jorah Mormont. Um, yeah, you don't like, I don't know, if you're me, you didn't know for a second if you were looking at 
skin or crust and you were like, whoa. Um, yeah. <laughs> Don't you think Ramsey Bolton would come in handy in this scene? You would. You would. <laughs> Do but the flaying for Sam, right? A few things to point out. Uh, you know, I I brought up about like this, how the the chains on the books in uh, the Citadel were that that this weird thing. But apparently, a, a couple librarians tweeted at us and wrote into us and like, there, there is a legitimate way of organizing books similar to what you see in the Citadel in real life. So I just wanted to give a shout out to that. A uh, couple other things I wanted to mention about this scene. Firstly, I've seen a lot of criticism of this scene as. Like the, the the method depicted for curing Jorah seems so simplistic, based on what Sam is doing. Uh, like the, the solution seems to be uh, peel off the horrible bits and put on some ointment. Like yeah, that that is the totality of the cure that we see, and it seems pretty. Like I don't know that Sam needs to read a whole book for that. Um, yeah. But did you have any thoughts on uh, you know overall your enjoyment of the scene? I mean, that better be some complicated ointment is what I have to say. <laughs> like Sam better have slaved over his Bunsen burner for a while on that. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the point that Ebros was making was that, um, you know, the last maester who tried or who like came up with this cure contracted grayscale. And so it's like too. Di- so even if it does seem simple, it's too like con- potentially contagious for someone to risk it. I can't remember. Was Sam wearing gloves he was wearing gloves but he wasn't okay. wearing any facial like or eye protection mm. and and so i just kept thinking oh my gosh this pus is gonna like spray into Ugh. sam's mouth Ugh. and like that's how he's gonna get grayscale and so i just thought man you guys gotta work on those on those um you know uh, yeah your e- your er uh paraphernalia yeah, yeah. um yeah, yeah. The other thing we should mention probably uh unless you want to keep talking about grayscale um <laughs> Is well, one when, when thing. Don't I? But continue. one thing I thought of is that at least now Dora will probably get a new shirt, so that's exciting for me. Yes, he hasn't ne- um, never gotten a new shirt yet. Yeah. He's had that same shirt since season two, and um, <clears throat> that Master Ebros mentions this thing about this book he's writing. Did you pick up on this? Uh, no, please tell me. <clears throat> it makes me a little ill to think about it. Yeah. <laughs> Maester Ebros said that he's writing a he's writing a book chronicling the war that happened after King Robert's death. So basically, everything we've been watching, he's been writing. Right. And then like Sam makes his face and he's like, "What? You don't like the title?" Which is like chronicles of something. Right. Like, you know, you don't like the title. And, and you think he's going to say something like a song of ice and fire or, or a Game, Game of, of Thrones? Thrones. Right. And then I and then I like kill myself. Um, <laughs> but he didn't. But he didn't, Joanna. He didn't. He didn't. But I was just like, that's too close for comfort. So anyway, no, it's fine. Um, I just if that if they leave it there, if it's just that little nod, that's fine. But if it becomes like it becomes like a, a subplot, thing, right? Yeah. Uh, if like somehow, I think a lot of people are like theorizing that Sam is gonna like this whole thing is going to be a story that Sam is telling or something like that. Right. Like, like Hobbit, I Hobbit style or something. Yeah, like that. yeah. I I am not here for that. Yeah, but. As a little throwaway joke, it's fine. But as like a laying track for something in the future, I, I can't I can't support it. So. Speaking of yeah. little throwaway jokes and laying track, we got to yeah. talk about some of the best transitions the show has ever had. Uh, we've already mentioned one of them, which is the transition from the steaming pus into the uh, pot pie that is being eaten uh, at the in at the crossroads. I think is what that scene is, right? Um, but uh, there was also this incredible uh, transition from the previous scene of Mesende and Grey Worm getting down, uh, 
like Grey Worm starts to go down, and then there is a there is a cut to a hand reaching into a triangular crevice of books. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Uh, which I just thought was a you know like a very sexual, suggestive. yeah, very sexually <laughs> suggestive sure. transition. Yeah. Uh, I think there's also a transition later where uh, like a transition to Jon Snow looking at a map that uh, like it transitions from Arya to Jon Snow looking at a map of where Arya is, I believe. Um, so a, lo- a lot of fun transitions in this episode. Uh, this season continuing the trend from last episode of uh, really amazing transitions. Uh, so just wanted to give a shout out to those. All right, Joanna, let's move on to the next location, King's Landing. Uh, we got Cersei at King's Landing assembling Westerosi lords and making a case for why they should be afraid of Daenerys. Uh, she doesn't want them coming in here with her dragons and her Dothraki and her Unsullied and just laying waste to everyone. Here in the show notes, Joanna, you write, she's not wrong. What do you mean by that? Everything she says about, she doesn't make up any stories about Daenerys. Right. Everything she says is true. And she might have something of a point. Like, uh, you know. We can draw easy, easy, boring comparisons to our last year's election and talk about like xenophobia and Cersei basically wanted to build a wall against the SOC invasion and blah, 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 and fear mongering and all of that. But like, she's not, she doesn't make up anything about what Daenerys has done. Um, and yeah, it's the worst possible spin she could take on it. But it's true that Daenerys has drafted in drafting the Dothraki and the Ironborn, both of which have like a reputation for rape. I mean, it's just like not the best PR yeah, one of thing the in the worst world. Reputation, one of the worst <laughs> kinds of reputations, a reputation yeah. for rape. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I, I just thought that was really I thought that was really compelling, right? That Cersei's making this big speech and you sort of expect her to lie and manipulate and she's trying to manipulate, but she's also like not wrong. So I, I saw all sorts of political parallels in this episode. There is a scene earlier with Varys where he says of Robert Baratheon uh that Robert wasn't a bad king. He just had no interest in being king. And uh, yeah. I got a reminder of another political figure uh that some of us might think about. But anyway, uh so she convinces all of them, hey, it's it's in your interest to join up with me uh, because otherwise you're going to have to serve Daenerys and you don't want to do that because of all these horrible reasons that I just told you about. So Jamie then works to convince Randall Tarly. Uh, to, he wants Randall Tarly to be his like main general, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And he can, tries to convince him that his men should abandon Olena and be loyal to Cersei. And if Randall agrees, he'll be Warden of the South when all is said and done. Uh, Randall is noncommittal and alludes to the dishonorability or dishonorableness, the dishonor, just the dishonor period, of the Lannisters. You know, refers mm-hmm. to the Red Wedding, refers to the fact that they uh, stab people behind their back and uh, do all sorts of horrible things and betray people. And he's, he's like, We're, I'm a, you know, the Tarleys are a simple folk. Uh, they, they don't go in for that kind of thing. I want you to be my ranking general in the wars to come. I want you to swear allegiance to Cersei, and I want you to help me destroy her enemies. All her enemies. Including Elena Tyrell. I'm a Tali. That name means something. We're not oathbreakers, we're not schemers. We don't stab our rivals in the back or cut their throats at weddings. I swore an oath. To House Tyrell. You sworn an oath to the crown as well, Lord Tarly. I've known Elena since I was a child. 
She was a great woman once. Now she's broken. She wants revenge so badly she brought the Dothraki to our shores. The Dothraki in Westeros for the first time in history. I know you don't like my sister, but you have to make a choice. Do you fight with us or with foreign savages and eunuchs? Yeah, I mean, like, to me, I'm not saying this won't happen, that that Randall Tarley won't be swayed by what Jamie was saying. Um, and I think it was smart for Jamie to be like, let me try to handle this interaction rather than Cersei. But uh, but Randall Tarley is such a stickler. for like, He's a marchionette, you know? He's just, like, a stickler for things. And so, like, the idea I, – I have trouble buying the idea in general that Cersei is on the throne, like, that she just took the throne without any sort of real right to it. Um, so I, I have trouble with that to begin with, but like that, that Randall Tarley would accept her authority in any way is, is especially sort of, uh, questionable to me, but yeah, basically, you know, the Tarley house, Tarley and their fighting men are, are very fearsome and a huge part of the, the greater Tyrell force. So if how, if Tarley's defect, that really weakens another sort of player that Daenerys has on her team. Um, and that's just interesting. And like, you know, given what happens to Yara and like the, the Dornish and, you know, the way in which Jamie's trying to weaken the Martells, all of a sudden the odds are looking very different, you know, than they did even a week ago. So it was very interesting to me. Yeah, totally. Uh, and speaking of changing the odds, there's a scene where Maester Kyburn uh, takes Cersei downstairs to this room that I don't think we've ever heard of before. Uh, where Robert has in- kept correct, I, I am correct. Or inc- incorrect. Incorrect. Oh, tell me, please. We see in the first season, Arya is like sneaking. Uh, Arya is like in doing her um, water dancing training. Oh, is like right. sort of sneaking all around King's Landing, yeah, yeah, and she's yeah. sneaking down there, and she sees uh, two people talking down there, and you see that dragon skull. I think it like looks better now because their budget's better now. Yeah, right, but like right. it was you like see a CG that dragon dragon skull or something like, that, or right. like it just looked a little bit more like styrofoamy than this one does or whatever. Right, but you right. see it. You see it in season one uh for sure yeah so uh then she says hey we've been working day and night on this solution and it turns out you can defeat dragons with an arrow what do you make okay listen <laughs> listen dragons have been defeated by stuff like that in mythology for you know there's always like the way a dragon is usually defeated is you find like a soft spot and you like stab it or something right like that's how maleficent is defeated <laughs> You know, Maleficent's dragon. Um, so that doesn't strike me as terribly crazy. And then there's context for it in the book. Um, in Aegon's Conquest, uh, Aegon the Conqueror had a dragon and then his two sister wives also had dragons. So it was like three three dragons, three riders. And one of them, both the sister wife, Rhaenys, and her dragon, Maraxis, were killed by this same weapon, uh, which is called a scorpion in the books. Or I think it's also known as a ballista uh, in, in real modern warfare. But it is like, it is actually, you know, it is actually a thing. Um, you know, I... And and people are, are you're it's saying part, it's part of the lore of the show. 
Right. It's yeah. part of the lore of the show. And Maraxis was killed with it with a with an arrow through the eye. So I feel like the idea is to get it through the eye. Now, now you're trying to hit a moving target. Like I understand that the odds are a thousand to one. I'm not saying they're not. Uh, I guess there also could be a case made for an arrow like sort of ripping through a wing and sort of like um, clipping a dragon that way. Um, you know, so there, I think there's a number of ways. And it's not just it's not just an arrow. Like it's it's a serious piece of equipment um you know it looks almost like like a siege sort of weapon so uh you know i'm i'm not as down on this one you're team you're team kybert on this one no i i I totally i totally get it i totally get it you need to have some uh plot device literally device uh to bring some tension because if if they have no defense against against the dragons. That is a trump card that it, it completely sucks all the tension out of the situation. You know, so totally understand they need something, and an arrow, you know, is a completely legitimate, uh, legitimate way of of taking down a dragon. I right. Mean, what what a, else is it going to be? Like a freaking trebuchet? You know, it, it's got to be something. So, because <laughs> um, dragons have that... been ta- dragons have been taken down before in the show. You know. Yeah, uh, not not you didn't see it, but it happened in in the history of the show. So yeah, the a bunch of people in the chat room are also being, also mentioning uh, something I forgot to mention, which is that um, Smaug, I believe, is felled by a giant right. from the uh, oh. from uh, Tolkien's Hobbit trilogy or right. n- not trilogy books. Um, just yes. the one book. Just the How one. Dare book. you let Peter Jackson infect your mind? Um, yeah, I, it, it, um, it's all in my mind now. Unfortunately, I'll, <laughs> I'll always remember it as a trilogy. Um, so, so yeah, totally understand. And I thought the scene was great of him showing her the weapon. So, uh, Winterfell. John gets a raven from Tyrion. Uh, oh, who, sorry. The one, the one other thing I want to mention about oh. the the dragon skulls in the crypt. Sorry about that. Is uh, you know, we see Cersei standing next to the this the skeleton head of Balerion the Black Dread, which was Aegon's, you know, steed, the biggest dragon I think that's ever been. And we see sort of um, comparison wise, like how tall she is versus the dragon. We see the Balerion is bigger than Drogon. At least the last time Drogon sort of put his head next to Daenerys, bigger. Um, and but you also see a bunch of smaller skulls down there, and that's because. Um, you know, the the reason one of the reasons that the dragons died out is that the Targaryens started keeping them in captivity and it's sort of like that thing where you breathe them in captivity and it gets smaller and smaller with every generation. So you see like little dragon skulls down there that look like the size of dogs because uh, that's sort of what happened to the dragons before they died out is they were bred in captivity and then they just got smaller and weaker and sadder. So Balerion is sort of the like um, genetic w- wonder <laughs> of all dragons. And it's possible that Drogon will get big as, as big as he is, but, um, or it was, but I, I just thought that was fun that they showed the other, the other sizes of dragon skulls too. Right. Right. Interesting. So we go to Winterfell and John gets a Raven from Tyrion. You referred to it earlier. The way that he knows it's from Tyrion is that Tyrion quotes something he said to John early on, which I just thought is so awesome that they call back to this, uh, line from six seasons ago uh, that you know is very memorable and characters remember it, audience remembers it. It's great. Uh, and he and Davos and Sansa decide he won't go. Um, even though so Davos, Davos is really excited about the idea of dragon fire being able to kill whites, and I'm like, is this the first time this has occurred to you, Davos? Right. <laughs> but okay, feels like um, it could be pretty helpful. Pretty helpful. So. Yeah. 
Uh, well, there's also a great theory, you know, this is not a spoiler because it's just a theory that like, so like fire kills the the whites, the like zomb- the little zombie things, but uh, white walkers put out fire. Like we've seen them walk through fire and put it out with their like cold frozenness, right? Right. So there's a theory that, you know, if dragon glass and dragon steel, valerian steel, both work on killing white walkers, then maybe dragon fire will actually burn a white walker, if re- even though regular fire can't. So we don't know, but that's a that's a fun theory. So Lord Tyrion has invited me to Dragonstone to meet with Daenerys. And I'm going to accept. We need this Dragonglass, my lord. We know that Dragonglass can destroy both White Walkers and their army. We need to mine it and turn it into weapons. But more importantly, we need allies. The Night King's army grows larger by the day. We can't defeat them on our own. We don't have the numbers. Daenerys has her own army, and she has Dragonfire. I need to try and persuade her to fight with us. Sir Davos and I will ride for White Harbor tomorrow, then sail for Dragonstone. Have you forgotten what happened to our grandfather? The Mad King invited him to King's Landing and roasted him alive. I know that. She is here to reclaim the Iron Throne and the Seven Kingdoms. The North is one of those Seven Kingdoms. This isn't an invitation, it's a trap. It could be. But I don't believe Tyrion would do that. You know him. He's a good man. Your Grace, with respect, I must agree with Lady Sansa. I remember the Mad King all too well. A Targaryen cannot be trusted. Nor can a Lannister. We called your brother king. And then he rode south and lost his kingdom. Winter is here, your grace. We need the king in the north in the north. Then we get another meeting scene. Uh, oh, he, we, we also... John gets another raven. He's getting lots of information, right? Sam tells him about the dragonglass uh, at Dragonstone, and uh, he says, like, oh, well, I, I guess I gotta go to Dragonstone. Gotta get this dragonglass... Um, but then during the cabinet meeting, uh, he just just let loose let, let's loose a bunch of information, including the fact that he's decided to go. Everyone, just leaving. Everyone is against it, including Lyanna, who is generally a John backer. Uh, right. So that was kind of shocking when she went against him. But then he's like, "Hey, that's why I've dis-, you know in a fairly like somewhat cheesy moment, he's like, <laughs> well, that's why you're going to be the one in charge, you know, uh, and leave Sansa in charge of Winterfell." So, again, we already talked about how, hey, just get, get your story straight before you get into the meeting, but... Uh, yeah, for, you know, I, I, was, front, but I was pretty hard on Sansa last week, and when I watched this episode, my first instinct was, like, she just did it again. She undermined him when she said he wouldn't, but then I was like, oh, wait, but they did have a pre-meeting. They all decided one thing, right? and then John just, like, changed it up. So, like, of course, what is Sansa going to do? So I, I, I back Sansa in this episode. She was right to be, like, shocked and upset that John is just, like, fully abandoning her. Um, and, you know, and I actually – someone mentioned this. You know, she says – um, I, I'm, I'm going to get it wrong, but she says something like, you're abandoning your people, you're abandoning the North. And someone was like, and I almost wish she had said, you're abandoning me in that moment. Like, but I guess that that was good subtext there. Like, right. you're abandoning me here. Um, you know, but then she does seem, but then it, uh, but then it quickly pivots because it does seem cheesy that he's like, you're in charge of the North. And then Sansa just 
feels immediately mollified. And then Brienne gives her this look of like, a girl, you earned it. You deserve this. And I'm not saying like Sansa doesn't, you know, she's the Stark in Winterfell. If Jon's not there, she should be the leader. They really should be co-leaders. I think their skill sets complement each other. But like, you know, yeah, Sansa is you know, the obvious choice, uh, to lead. I, I'm not, I'm not in support of all of her decisions, but like she is the one with the most claim here. Um, and then of course, you know, little fingers doing what little finger does, which is like looking shiftily around the room. <laughs> right. I gotta say, you know, uh, we ha- have made it a policy to not talk about the next time on preview on game of Thrones. And I'm not going to do that for next week's, but I will say that after last week's episode, I made the mistake of watching the first five seconds of the next time on preview. And it was a scene from this meeting where, uh, I don't remember, uh, Jan Royce, I think? Jan Royce, He says, a Targaryen cannot be trusted. And for some reason, I thought he was talking about Jon. And I was just like, oh my gosh, this is going to be like a freaking bomb next week when Bran tells Jon, like, it gets out that Jon's a Targaryen. Um, but no, none of that actually happened. I think there is a lot of question about when Bran is going to reveal that information, right? If and if and when and how. If and when. Yeah. Well, but also, I mean, we're going to talk about this in the next scene, but like, um, I, I do think that that was an intentional, like, you know, Jan Roy saying that a, a Targaryen can't be trusted and everyone being like, yes, yes. I mean, there is supposed to be a dramatic irony there of like, we know that John is part Targaryen and so that that's, an interesting yeah, moment. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I just was like, I really felt, I was like, oh my gosh, I was really psyched for this big confrontation <laughs> and then it didn't happen. So that that shows me why I should never watch those next time on previews. <laughs> um, which is something I generally don't do. I just, I, I couldn't turn it off fast, in time, uh, fast enough. So right. then uh, John and Littlefinger come to blows in the Winterfell crypt. Yeah. Um, and, I, I, you know, what, what is your take on why John gets super pissed at, at uh, Littlefinger? Because he's being creepy about his sister, and he's always creepy about his sister. You know what I mean? He's creepy about his mom, and um, like John doesn't know what Littlefinger did. John doesn't know that Littlefinger betrayed his father and all that sort of stuff like that. But John has, you know, Sansa is playing the game, but John is like, I mean, well, okay, a couple things. One, the way the the way in which he throws Littlefinger up against the wall is an exact intentional mirror of what Ned did to Littlefinger mm-hmm. um, in season one, episode three, I believe it is, uh, outside the brothel when he thinks like Littlefinger is making a joke about Catelyn. He right. like it's an exact mirror, mm-hmm. and so you know, and um, at the time in season one, Littlefinger says something about like. Uh, the Starks, quick temper, slow minds, or something like that. You know what I mean? And so, like, it, it, it's it's a it's a Ned Stark flare up in John, um, in that moment. Yeah, and I think he, he just really put some ointment on that. <laughs> well, he just doesn't have. Uh, yeah, maybe Sam has some. He just doesn't have what Sansa has in terms of like she's she's not like nice to Littlefinger, but she's like tolerant enough because she feels like she needs him. And John's like, yeah, I don't suffer fools and I don't suffer manipulative bastards and you're a manipulative bastard. And I can tell. Um, but speaking of that whole revelation thing, what's really interesting to me, you know, the, why you thought Jan Royce was saying a Targaryen can't be trusted. What was interesting to me is um, this scene um, back in season five, the last time we saw Littlefinger down in the crypts, he was with Sansa and he was talking about Lyanna, um, John's mom. And they were, you know, they were, yeah, they were talking all about Rhaegar Targaryen and Lyanna Stark, who's John's parents in the crypt. And Sansa says something like, yeah, he kidnapped my aunt and then he, you know, raped her or something like that. And Littlefinger gives her this look that to me at the time in season five really read as, 
oh, did he? Um, as in like, I know the real story. I know that they were actually in love and they eloped and ran off together. And so, um, I, I, I felt at the time in season five that Littlefinger knew, and I'm still trying to figure out whether or not I still think he knows, because if he knows, is it to his benefit to tell, I mean, it, it's kind of a moot point now because John is like sort of, you know, fucked off to Dragonstone, but like, in terms of the shifting power players in the North, is it to Littlefinger's advantage to reveal to Sansa or to John uh, who, what his actual parentage is? That he's not Ned Stark's son. Um, you know, so he's not, he doesn't even have that tenuous bastard claim right, here. Right. Um, and, and like the xenophobic Northerners, if, he, if they find out he's half Targaryen, like, are they going to drop their any backing of him? You know what I mean? Like, Lyanna Mormont, when she gave her big speech at the end of season six about why John should be king of the North, she's like, Ned Stark's blood runs through his veins. And it's like, well, not quite. <laughs> A close. <laughs> I remember uh, that, yeah. You know, so... So I, I don't, the answer is that, so when I saw them in the crypt, I, and they were in front of Ned's statue and Liana's statue was right nearby, I thought Littlefinger was going to tell him. And, um, and he didn't. And so I'm trying to figure out if I still think he knows and is playing some other game or if he just never knew and I read too much well, why, into why, a look. That's something you, uh, you know, revenge is a dish best of cold. Like that's something you reveal at the moment when it's worse for like the worst for John. I would say. I okay. think Littlefinger's a ticking time bomb and something horrible is going to happen with him. Uh, and what you described is one very uh, plausible scenario of how it could play out. Right. So. All right, let's move on to uh, what's going on over with Arya. She finds Hot Pie and there's a scene where she just feels she's really kind of emotionless as she eats and drinks uh, stuff that Hot Pie provides her. Uh, there's this great dialogue between Hot Pie and her where she's talking about all the stuff that's happening to her. You know, Hot Pie alludes to the fact that he directed Brienne to her, right? Yeah. I think. Uh-huh. And, yeah. you know, she says, oh, she found me. No yeah. other explanatory remarks. It's like, the, it's like the worst date ever. Like, you know, when you go, you go on a date and someone says, you know, oh, hey, how, how is your date today? And they say, good, and nothing else, you know? This is a tough conversation to have. Yeah. You know, of all the like kind of scarily psycho things we've seen Arya do, this was like one of the scarier scenes for me because like she sits down and he's like, Arya. She's like, hello, hop high. Like no emotion. Right. Just like no surprise and no emotion, total flat affect. Like it just really freaked me out. And then she's just sort of like, he's like, oh yeah, this is my secret to my pie crust. She's like, huh, I didn't do that when I murdered a bunch of people and baked them into a pie. <laughs> you know, she's like so blase about it. And it's, it was such a weird thing, a weird moment compared to like the lively humanity she showed with the Lannister soldiers last week. Right. Uh, even though she was joking about killing the queen, but, um, but it's still, it was lovely to see how pie, um, I thought he was so charming as always. And, um, and you know, he basically inspires her to change her plan from going to King's Landing to going back to Winterfell. So I thought it was some very economical screenwriting that's going on. Um, mm-hmm. when, the guy, you know, the people next to her say, 200 miles to King's Landing, do we have enough uh, rum or whatever to last us all the way? And then you see them go off in one direction, and then you see Arya struggle with whether she should go off in that direction as well. You know, uh, it's hard to convey 
that kind of stuff without just some sign that says King's Landing, 200 miles this way, you know? Um, so I thought the, the way they conveyed that decision and her turning around was, was very effective. Um, she may encounter Sansa, but she's probably not going to meet John, unfortunately, right? Uh, because John is off. No, she's too. gonna miss John. Yeah, she's gonna miss John. But, well, the yeah. other the other thing that a lot of people pointed out, and I completely agree with, we said we wouldn't be nitpicky about ravens and traveling, but it does not make any sense that Sam's raven and Daenerys's raven or Tyrion's raven should get to John before Ed sends a raven <laughs> saying, "Hey, your brother, your creepy little brother's here at the wall. Right? Um, you know, come get him, or we're sending him to you." And like, you know, so well, John has no way. That, there's also the fact that Arya doesn't know that John is in charge of the Night's Watch, or you know, is King of the North again, uh, even after she's heard that Cersei is queen. Um, but perhaps there's different channels by which that information is discovered. Uh, anyway, sorry. Go yeah, but I feel like the reason for this story, uh, show-wise, is that John would have hesitated more to leave King's Landing if he had known Bran was on the way. You know, like in the first, it's very, it's very sweet and memorable in the first like couple episodes, the John and Bran interaction. You know, like don't yeah. look away, father will know if you do, or like all this sort of stuff like that. Like, so if he heard that Bran was nearby, I don't feel like John would have left, and I feel like the show needed him to leave. So really, honestly, what I think they should have done, um, you know, in order to get around this, is have Bran show up the wall in this episode. You know what I mean? And then right. it just makes more sense. Right, right. Um, so remember earlier when I said we wouldn't? Uh, I know. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, it's okay. <laughs> uh, I, I can't resist myself either. So all right, so. There's a scene with Arya in the woods. Nymeria comes back. I don't think we've seen Nymeria since episode two, season one. Is that right? Uh, like, yeah, I think so. Many, King many Jared? years yeah. since we've seen Nymeria. And uh, she was let loose, right? It, it, rather than being slaughtered because of that misunderstanding they had with Joffrey uh, a lifetime ago in this show. Yeah. Arya asks Nymeria to go with her. Uh, Nymeria leaves. And there's been a lot of debate over what exactly was going on in this scene. Uh, she says uh, she says something like, uh, "That's not you." That's not you, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I, you know, I read like Alan Steppenwolf's take was like Arya was talking to herself when she said that, that's not you, which is definitely not my interpretation. That means Alan Steppenwolf didn't watch the behind-the-scenes mm. interview with Weiss and Benio. <laughs> yeah, so tell us. I mean, my understanding is that uh, she's saying. Like, Nymeria is not... Like, that is literally Nymeria, a.k.a. the dog that... Or the, I should say, direwolf that Arya grew up with. Um, but Nymeria has now become a different creature, right? And that's what she's talking about? No. Okay. Um, Tell me. Like I said, Brian Cogman loves to do callbacks to earlier lines in earlier seasons. And Weiss and Benioff explained something that nobody got when they watched the episode. Right. Um that this is a callback to season one when Ned Stark and Arya are talking and Ned's like, someday you'll grow up and you'll be a lady in a castle and you'll marry someone and it'll be great. And Arya just sort of looks at him and she goes, no, that's not me. Um, and so in this scene, Arya is saying, Nymeria, come with me to Winterfell and you will be my pet again. And it'll be great. Remember when you fetched my gloves and you helped me pack and that was so great and we're good friends and blah, blah. And then Nymeria leaves and then Arya goes, no, that's not you. You're not a domesticated animal. You're too feral for that, which is sort of, you know, which is a reflective of what Arya has become right, like a Arya, more a feral, yeah. a feral Stark. And so um, that's what that scene meant. Um, it's, hard to convey any kind of meaning when uh it's just you know one young actress and a cgi wolf 
or a bunch of wolves. And, uh, you know, it's especially hard to sort of layer in a subtle callback to season one. But, um, so nobody got that. I, I, I feel like nobody got that. And then, but then Weiss and Benioff explained it in the beside the behind the scenes episode, uh, thing that they do on HBO go that I watched immediately after the episode. So immediately I understood, but it took like some footnotes for me right. to get what they were talking about. Um, that's what I was trying to communicate my understanding. So I'm sorry if I was like way off. Uh, but yeah, my, my understanding is that, uh, that, that is actually Nymeria, correct? Right. Yeah. 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 So, but she's just, it's just the mirror of the fact that, uh, Arya cut off from her loved ones and parents, uh, has now become like a completely different person and um, doesn't see herself as in the same way that she used to. I don't, I don't, that's not what I'm saying. Sorry. What I'm saying is that like Nymeria is not that like, or maybe, maybe it's closer than I think. Anyway, um, point being that um, some, some people are worried that this is the last we'll see of Nymeria ever there. You know, I wrote, I wrote up a piece on VF about sort of the direwolves in the show and sort of what they've had to do because of budgetary. It's not just budgetary concerns. Why somebody off gave this inter- interesting interview a couple years ago about how, you know, cause they're, they're spending their budget in other directions. They're like, um, you know, on the dragons and stuff like that. But their point was we can make dragons and we can make the dragons bigger and bigger and bigger. And there's no way that you're going to be like, that doesn't look like a dragon because like dragons aren't real, but to supersize a wolf is harder for them to make it look natural. And I agree with that. Like I was looking back at there's this season two scene with Rob and um, Grey Wind and he's like interrogating Jamie. Um, you know, Jamie's in in the cell in Rob's camp and Grey Wind comes up and he's like so big and he's standing by him Rob beside Rob and it just looks bad. And I feel like they just know that. They know that they have not been able to really nail getting the direwolves to stand near they're humans right. and make it look right. Um, and, you know, so I also read an interview that um, Miguel Sapochnik um, said that originally Ghost was supposed to be, I mean, and so, but it doesn't really make sense that John does. I mean, I understand they're killing these direwolves like they did last season, Summer and uh, Shaggy Dog, they just killed because they're like, we don't want to deal with these direwolves anymore. But I feel like they need to keep Ghost around and probably Nymeria because probably they have some role to play in the end game, which I speculated about on VF. But like, um, but it doesn't, it just makes no sense that John is just forever leaving Ghost behind when the whole point when the show started and in the books is that like the Starks should always have their direwolves with them. They're their protective spirits, you know, and John is just forever like not taking Ghost with him. And so, you know, Sapochnik was like originally Ghost was supposed to be all up in Battle of the Bastards. Sapochnik is like, but, you know, a direwolf couldn't survive a battle like that. But that's not true because Grey Wind survived a bunch of battles with Rob. And so eventually Sapochnik is like, well, we could do the budget for the giant or you do the budget for the direwolf. So we picked the giant. Um, so anyway, I mean, it's just, it's just a way in which the show has really struggled to make one of like, there's a lot of fantasy elements they can adapt, but this is almost like a, a George R. R. Martin fantasy element. That's too close to reality yeah. that they just can't make like, it work visually. You know, Kenny Valley style, you know, that yeah. it's, it's, it's too close. I have never really found the direwolves to be convincing visually. 
uh, it, it's one visual effect where I feel like I can always see the seams of it. Right. Um, and they were, it was fine in season one when they were like puppies and then right. like they were wolf, sh- like normal size. Steven Rivers in our chat room was like, should have just left them normal size wolves. And I agree. Yeah. Like book readers would have complained, but if they had left them where they could just use actual size wolves who were still like very vicious and sort of like maybe psychically attuned to Stark kids, it still would have been cool. Um, you know, so I, I, you know, probably if Weiss and Benny F could do it again, they might have done something like that. But as it is, I think they're trying to make the best of it all. Um, the last thing I'll say about Dire Wolves, if you guys aren't bored of me talking about it, is that Martin gave this inter- interesting interview to Mashable. I think it was 2013 or somewhere around there where he said he he talked about how important Nymeria is. Because Nymeria and her wolf pack are sort of like – they're in the books more than they are than they have been in the show, which is not at all. And so he's like, you know, you don't. He said, uh, like, sort of making alluding to the Chekhov gun, you know, expression. Is he's like, you don't hang a like a hundred a pack of a hundred direwolves on a wall if you don't intend to use it. That's what he said. So I'm pretty sure that Nymeria. That I don't. Once again, I don't think this is a spoiler because I don't know. But I feel like knowing what I know about Martin and his fondness for Tolkien and Tolkien's fondness for Deus Ex Machinas and like eagles coming to save the day, I bet Nymeria and the pack show up in like a final battle scene. Mm-hmm. That would be my guess. So, well, speaking of final battle scenes, this episode <laughs> had a pretty big one. Uh, yeah. The Sand Snakes, Alaria, Theon, Yara—they're all chilling on their way to Dorne. Uh, when they are suddenly attacked by Euron and his men. Uh, we see on screen Euron kill two of the Sand Snakes with their own weapons. He takes Alaria and Tyene prisoner. I think you're the, only, this is, <laughs> you're the only one who could probably identify which Sand Snake was actually taken with him. Um, he holds Yara hostage, and Theon is too scared to help. He just jumps off uh, the ship. And the final scene is Theon kind of just uh, treading water while, uh, while Euron sails away. Uh, this is a pretty intense scene. It's, I think, the most action this season so far, right? Um, <laughs> in these two episodes, yeah. In these two episodes, yeah, yeah where it's mostly <laughs> just people in rooms talking about stuff. Uh, and uh, I thought it was overall pretty well done. My favorite part of this scene was uh, Alfie Allen's performance as Theon. You can yeah. see how his facial expression, like, he reverts back to Reek. It's a heartbreaking moment, but also shows you how much foundational work he put into that performance, uh, to make it so that you understood exactly what was happening, even just with the turn, the change of his demeanor, you know. So I yeah. really love that moment in in the scene. Uh, also, like that the Sand Snakes are now dead. Characters who no one really liked or cared about that much uh, are gone. Hopefully Two of them. forever. Two of them, at least. Yes. Mm. Um, that being said, this is the most that the Sand. This is the most sympathetic the Sand Snakes have ever been in the entire mm. history of the show. Uh, is right before they're about to die. So, what did you think of this uh, closing sequence, Joanna? A couple things I wanted to answer a question that was put earlier in the chat room and I actually got asked in a number of different and entertaining ways today, which is, is it true that Arya's direwolf is named Nymeria and one of the sand snakes is also named Nymeria? The answer is yes. So there were two characters, <laughs> major characters named Nymeria in this episode. They're named for the same sort of warrior, warrior princess figure from uh, Westerosi lore. One of them anyway. is completely feral <laughs> with no good lines. No, I'm, okay. And the other, and the one, other is, one is a wolf. Is um, a, yeah. I get it. Yeah. Um, I agree. I, this felt, it felt very fan servicey to me to kill two sand snakes. I mean, like, you know, 
I, I really don't mean to be flogging my own work, but I also don't want to like bore people by, you know, basically rehashing things that they might have already read on VF. But I went into sort of the history of the show's reaction to the Sand Snake problem and how, you know, like what's fascinating to me is before, you know, Tyene, who is the Sand Snake who had that like terrible bad pussy line in season five. I counted. She has had zero lines since until this episode. <laughs> they were like, she will never speak again until <laughs> she has to. And the other ones have had like five and eight and stuff. Like, you know, they've just wow. really, sh- really shelved them as much as they could. They showed up in season six to kill all the male characters from Dorne, right? They knocked out all three of them within the span of two scenes. So they killed one half of the Dornish plot. And then they showed up here just to die, right? So the show's like, yeah, we get it. You hate Dorne. We'll kill them. Just calm down. But you can't ignore Dorne entirely in this battle because Dorne has such a huge army that it would it would be uh, ridiculous for them to just sit this out. So they sort of did this ju- complicated juggling act to have them involved, but then to like kill them quickly so everyone would be like, yay! Um, I thought it was a little brutal. Not that Game of Thrones isn't brutal often, but like, uh, you know, I feel like the camera in that fan service um, thing, the camera was really lingering on Obara being sort of impaled and held aloft by her own sphere and then Nymeria getting the life choked out of her. So, um, yeah, so I have, I've, you know, I never liked the Sand Snakes, but I have some complicated feelings about it. Um, and there was a lot of confusion about the final shot um, because I think a lot of people thought that was Yara hanging from the prow of the ship when that's actually Nymeria hanging from her own whip and Obara impaled on her own spear. And the last thing I'll say is another complaint I got is or question is people asking how Euron found them so quickly. Right. Um, that was pretty fast. But if you look at the map, we talked about this earlier. We talked about how Dragonstone and King's Landing are on either side of the same bay. And the last time we saw, uh, you know, Euron, he was sailing out of that bay away from Cersei. And um, Yara and the, and the rest of them had to leave Dragonstone to go south. Like basically... Euron tripped over them coming out of the bay. Like there's, they're they're on a they were on a collision course. So like it's not like he sailed around the like foot of the continent and found them on the other side. He like found them exiting the the bay where King's Landing is. So um, you know I, that at least is a little bit plausible to me. It's really the map stuff I know is really hard. They're trying in the show to integrate a bunch of maps so we can understand locations, but it's it's really hard to like hold it all in your head. But um, and then I you know I, I also heard uh, Todd Vanderwoof at Vox uh, was complaining that he thought the battle looked really cheap. Um, shot at night, obviously when you shoot stuff at night, you're trying to cover like a multitude of CGI sins. Uh, they right. they they shot battle. Of Blackwater Bay at night as well, season or, two, or right? yeah. yeah, in season two. Um, uh, but I don't know. I thought it looked kind of impressive. I thought I liked Euron's like completely unhinged performance here, and um, yeah, I don't know. It, you know, it's they, they promised a lot more spectacle, and here you go. You've got a bunch of sand, dead sand snakes and and half the Iron Fleet burning in the water. So there we yeah. go. Yeah, it's a pretty pretty eventful. Uh, Daenerys and Tyrion's plans lie in ruins. Maybe uh, they probably could have used some dragon backup. Is my guess. Uh, it would have been, it would have been helpful. Yeah, would have been helpful. Uh, I liked how some people are, are describing Euron uh, on the uh, Up Rocks podcast, uh, TV Avalanche. They described him as if Pacey from Dawson's Creek had an older brother who was way into stained at one point, but now denies it. 
Huh. Which I thought was uh, an apt description. I mean, there's been a lot of like Euron has become kind of a meme this season, and uh, uh-huh. this episode definitely contributed to that because of some of his crazed look when he first shows up is pretty remarkable. Yeah. So uh, I, I thought it was a solid uh, set piece. My guess. Is- I mean, it's over the top, but you know, I, Game of Thrones is so over the top these days right, that it right. didn't really stand out yeah. to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and then, then I think we know that. Um, you know, last week Euron told Cersei that he would bring her a gift, a priceless gift, and now he has Alaria, Sand, and Tyene. Um, Alaria is the person who killed Cersei's daughter Marcella, right. and Tyene is Alaria's only daughter. So I can imagine that potentially, um, we're about to see some more um revenge <laughs> coming up. Is would be my guess. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Uh, all right. Overall, I thought it was a solid episode. Uh, I thought it just a lot of table setting for future events, but uh, that final set piece was pretty impressive uh, and uh, very eventful. What do you think? That's so funny. That's so funny that you see table setting for future events because, like, what? Um, what Liter- I, you know? Literally table setting. Well, yeah. a lot of <laughs> a lot of people felt that um, the first, or some people felt that the first episode was kind of slow. And too much table setting, too much play setting, all that sort of stuff. To me, this episode felt like so much happened. Like, are you kidding me? Like, Arya's going home to Winterfell. Arya found her dire wolf. Jorah's grayscale is probably cured. Um, two sand snakes are dead. There was a big battle. Theon has reverted to Reek. Yara is captured. Um, you know, Jon Snow's going to go see Daenerys Targaryen. Like, I feel like, you know, Melisandre melt- met Daenerys. We found out something new about the Azor High prophecy. Like, so much stuff happened in this episode. And I feel like this is the crazy accelerated pace that they're just going to have to maintain, I guess, until the end. Um, um, what I felt like this, you know, and I know we're going to sort of dive into a listener email that kind of pertains to this, but what I felt like this episode was really missing was a slowdown moment. I wanted like a hound moment. And I guess maybe like, you know, we talked about the Sandy Grey Worm scene, like maybe that was their slowdown moment, but it is nothing compared to like the soul that the hound brought to the premiere. And I was really missing that soul, right, I think, right, in right. this episode. All right, Joanna, fair enough. Uh, Good points. And uh, I I will say one interesting thing that also uh, might happen is uh, Davos meeting uh, Melisandre again, right? Because he's going with Jon to Dragonstone. Oh, yeah. That should ratchet up the tension there as well. So that's that's another uh, interesting thing that might come into play later. Uh, But you alluded to emails. Uh, This email comes in from Kamau from Los Angeles. You can always email us at acastofkings at gmail.com. Kamal writes in, uh, last week I was rewatching a bunch of old Simpsons episodes and I came across this scene and he links to this uh, scene from a Simpsons episode of Marge trying to make sense of something that happens in the Simpsons' lives. Um, and Kamau continues, it struck me as the perfect encapsulation of the frustration that I, and I assume many others feel about where Game of Thrones is right now. Early on in the series, looking for themes beneath the surface was rewarding. There was something to be said in the first few seasons about the nature of fear, power, greed, bloodlust, friendship, honor, duty, etc. But now, that all seems to have disappeared. Right now, I feel like Marge Simpson searching around for some greater meaning or message, and I fear that we are left, uh, what we are left with now may just end up being a bunch of stuff that happened that there's no moral to this story and that it will just end up being an exciting series of events. If so, does that mean I should stop holding this show to the old standard and just try to enjoy it for what it is? Will this show ever return to what it once was, or do I just have to wait for George to release a more nuanced version of the story? 
What do you think, Joanna? Has it become has the show become a series of events versus uh, a show that is rich with themes? This, well, you know, I, I definitely see how they were trying for something in this episode, like with Arya, uh, the Arya and Amiria stuff. I guess would them would be them hitting like a thematic theme pretty hard. But this episode in particular did feel like just a rapid fire series of events of unfortunate events almost, you know. And so I I would say that definitely applies here. And I've also I've noticed a bunch of fans are um, whenever I get super weird crackpot theories <laughs> from people, it's usually them trying to make sense of some uh, like kind of a logic gap in the show. Uh, they're trying to make the show behave more like the books again which uh-huh. it just will never do, I think. And so they concoct these elaborate theories of like, what if this and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, that's the kind of story that George might tell, but that's not the story that Weiss and Benioff are telling on HBO. It's not to say, once again, that it's a bad show at all. It's just a different kind of story. It w- would be my assessment. So does, I mean, that does that make sense? Yeah, totally, totally. Um, and... I, I, I think you're right. There's so much happening right now uh, that I think it'll take a little bit of time before we see the themes come into full uh, focus. And so I'm willing to, to wait and see a little bit. I think the themes were a lot more obvious earlier on, um, especially with Ned Stark being kind of a character that helped to ground the show in many ways, Joffrey being a kind of character, a villain that helped to ground the show in many ways. Um, but yeah, I, I think overall... Uh, I certainly don't think of it as a show that has abandoned all of its thematic weight. I mean, I think the Arya storyline alone, I feel like, uh, has a lot to say about the nature of revenge and what you become uh, when it's all you're consumed by, you know? And so I'm not ready to to give up on on the show yet when it comes to yeah what what its themes are. So, but I, I I can totally understand why someone would think that. And uh, let's just give it let's just give it until the end of the show. You know, next couple of years before we make that decision. <laughs> so, but right. I mean, I I think it's fair to say that the show is different now than it was before. That it had more room before. We all we always say that like we're like oh the show doesn't have room for this. The show doesn't have time for this because they have to get to the end. Um, and while it's true, it just it, it just means that it's, yeah, it's a different show, different priorities. Their priority now is to carry this ball against across the finish line, which, by the way, is something George R. R. Martin, like, bless and love him, has not been able to do. And so, you know, they're sacrificing some nuance in order to get there. And I think that's understandable, but it's still probably worth remarking on, you know? Indeed, indeed. Well, you can always write into us at... Uh a cast of kings at gmail.com that's a cast of kings at gmail.com find us on facebook and twitter uh at a cast of kings and i also want to mention uh, if you are a fan of this podcast if you could leave us a review on itunes or even just a rating like you don't even need to leave, leave us a review just like rate us a star rating on itunes we'd really appreciate it uh it would help people to find us especially amongst the sea of game of thrones podcasts that there are out there so yeah an itunes apple podcasts would really be grateful if you could uh, leave us a review uh, and find more episodes of the show at GameOfThronesPodcast.com. The song that's going to play us out is Jenny Owen Young's and Kristen Russo's song Dragonstone, which you can find at BufferingTheVampireSlayer.com slash GOT. You can find our sponsor uh, at Apple.co slash Game of Thrones. And Jonah Robinson, where can people find your work on the internet? 
uh, on goodoldvanityfair.com. You can hear me talking about um, other Storm, uh, other Game of Thrones uh, issues on Storm of Spoilers. I was also on the Hive podcast with Nick Bilton last week talking about Game of Thrones and sort of the end game and what it means for HBO. So if you want to check that out, the Hive podcast with Nick, Nick Bilton. And otherwise, you can find me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. Uh, yeah, th- that's a pr- pretty cool uh, appearance on the Hive podcast given, you know, the... Uh... Uh, the the pedigree of interviewees on that podcast, Joanna. Uh, I think yeah, but the, who the, owns that podcast? The previous <laughs> guest, I think, was uh, Malcolm Gladwell. So Malcolm Gladwell one week, John Robinson the next week. Uh, one is an intellectual titan. The other one wrote The Tipping Point. Um, <laughs> find more of my stuff at DaveChen.net. Follow me on Twitter at DaveChensky. And I host a film podcast called The Slash Filmcast. Find that at SlashFilmcast.com. Thanks again to Jenny Owens-Young and Kristen Russo for writing Dragonstone. Uh, and you will hear it starting right now. Last time we checked in, the sept was toast. Now what's everybody up to in Westeros? The army of the dead's coming south with snows. Thank the seven, everybody's in Westeros. Winter came for house fray. If one wolf gets in the wine, the sheep are never safe. Visions and all. Bran reached the wall And it let him in But that might have been A dooming call John and Sansa held A great big meeting Brienne's given pot Quite a beating Torment is entranced And little fingers creeping Like he does Glossing over Sam Cause he's got it gross The unluckiest guy in Westeros Haven't seen Nymeria Haven't seen ghosts But everybody else is in Westeros Here come a sexy eyeliner pirate Asking for Cersei's hand The mountain shawl wants to fight him Jamie doesn't understand why his sister is still in hot pursuit of a dynasty built for two. Sandor the Hound is coming round, staring in the flames and digging midnight graves for the ones he once struck down. And oh, we've seen in quarantine Jorah still alive with devoted eyes out for the Dragon Queen. Meanwhile, Danny touching down on her homeland. Varys looking like he got a good tan. Could he really be a secret merman? I hope so. Arya might not kill these Lannister bros. Could redemption be reality in Westeros? Look at Ed Sheeran making rabbit roast. I guess everybody really is in Westeros. Everybody's finally in Westeros.